Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 350 of Forgotten Classics. 350? That's nuts, right? If you haven't been listening for very long, go to the library tab at the blog for the podcast and take a look at all the books that are there ready to be listened to. I did want to tell you about one book that I've been listening to that I got from Audible, actually, who is not sponsoring this podcast. That's just where I got it. It's a class about St. Augustine's Confessions done by Professors William Cook and I think it's Ronald Hertzman. I know Hertzman is the last name. I love the way these two guys work together. I've listened to them do a class on St. Francis of Assisi and Dante's Divine Comedy. And they kind of do this wonderful handoff. One of them is an English teacher, one of them is a history teacher, but they both love the subjects so much that they're very conversant with other ways to explain what the other teacher's saying, and they really enlighten you. I read Augustine's Confessions, oh gosh, was it a couple years ago? Anyway, for my Catholic Women's Book Club, and Some of it was really interesting, and some of it, which of course were the deeper parts, (laughs) were the parts where I kind of struggled or, you know, felt like these are so boring. But what these two professors were pointing out, as again, good teachers do, was that the, these parts all were designed to work together. And with a guide such as they give in this, it's a 12 hour course, it's the great courses. So that's something like 24 classes, I guess. So they're kind of in fairly digestible chunks, just half an hour at a time. Although I listened to them all within a much shorter time than you would think, maybe within a week, because I was so taken with what they were saying. And I could remember the basic parts of the story. But it did inspire me to want to go back and read the Confessions again, which is something I thought would never happen. So I would say that if you are interested in reading something like this or Dante or even, I think I was mentioning, and if I didn't, I should, that Mythgard Academy was beginning the Consolation of Philosophy by Boethius, you might want to listen to these first before you read the book. It's not like there's huge spoilers to a lot of this stuff. I mean, it's mostly pretty old. But if you're struggling, if you're intimidated, a lot of times these are like wonderful previews to kind of get you excited and help you work through it. At least that's my experience. I've been listening to The Consolation of Boethius from the free LibriVox recording, which is not, you know, the best reading in the world, but it's doing much better than me trying to read it off my Kindle, but I've been letting the Mythgard Academy people lead the way so that I kind of know what I'm listening to already. So it helps my ear to actually hear what I'm supposed to hear. Anyway, so there are your recommendations in case you want to try something else for weekends like the last one where no episode came out. And that's because my husband and I had our 33rd wedding anniversary. So we went off to a little tiny Texas town called Palestine. And the virtue of this town was just that it was within a two hour radius for driving. That was our criteria. So it got us far enough away 
but not so far away that it was arduous to get to or back from. And it's also in East Texas, so it's in the Piney Woods, as they would say. And it really feels like a different world in a lot of ways. It's hilly. Of course, there are plenty of trees everywhere. And because it's a very old town that came into its fruition with the railroad choosing it as a major place to stop, you've got all this really old history in their tiny East Texas Culture Museum, in their graveyard, in a lot of the old buildings. And we stayed in an old bed and breakfast where we managed to get the last room they had. And luckily for us, it was a second floor suite that had a balcony. So we could sit on the balcony and have our cocktails or read our books on a rainy day, which happened, and just kind of have a luxurious weekend, even though it was someplace that no one's ever heard of, except the fine people of Palestine, of course, which is spelled like Palestine, but pronounced Palestine. So in my hurry to get ready to go, I thought I could get an episode out, but I was wrong, as you know. So let's talk about the green jacket. We met Millie, who is that really rare thing, especially in a book from 1917, a female detective. And she's so good that her former boss wants to have her be a partner. Although we can see, as we learn what he thinks, that he's still feeling like he'll have the upper hand. But he doesn't understand Millie, and it soon becomes clear that he never really did have an understanding because she's got a really different way of doing things. Part of it is just Millie, I think, and part of it is the lady's touch, such as with the knitting and the fact that she knits notes into her... um, projects that she's working on while she's detecting. And I like also the fact that she says, I reserve the right to decide what happens to the people we catch or that she catches. And we see from the example with Carl, what she's doing, she's applying a gentler medicine than a jail would apply and kind of giving his family a little bit of help too, because he's still able to earn money. He's still there to be a better man than he was before, stay on the straight and narrow more. So he's providing, you know, he's a husband, he's a father, his family can be complete while he's learning to be a different person and cast off some of those bad habits. So that makes you wonder, in the years since Millie left her other employee before she started her own agency, which we learn is super busy, growing all the time, we wonder how many people have been helped in this way, you know, that gentler medicine, almost a social worker aspect to it, except that it's not institutionalized, which I think sometimes can be the problem, especially if there's a lot of people involved in the system. So I found that all very intriguing. And as we go into the mystery of the book, isn't it interesting that this is one that none of the big agencies could solve? And the guy who just wants to really kind of take advantage of her by having her be a partner says, whatever it takes, it just needs to be solved. And I think you can do it because you've got such a different technique. That's a real big acknowledgement for a guy who... When we saw into his head, it's kind of a jerk. Now, one quick refresher as we go back into the story is that as he was leaving, another gentleman was showing up for an appointment, an unexpected appointment, I think we got the impression. 
So when we pick up with this next chapter, Millie is going to be talking to this fellow to find out what it is he wants. And I found this conversation very revealing about the way she thinks and the way she works with people and listens to them and looks at their problems. And then we'll get more into that necklace. So let's dive back into the green jacket, read for us by J.M. Small here from LibriVox. And if you need to knit yourself some notes while you listen, go right ahead. Chapter 5 Will you sit down? said Millie. She motioned to the chair by the desk. He looked a little dubiously about the room, and then at the quiet figure that confronted him. "'You are Miss Newberry?' he said doubtingly. "'Yes,' she smiled slightly. He seated himself and drew a handful of papers from his pocket. From among them he selected a business card and laid it on the desk. "'That is my name.' She glanced down at the minute script. "'Dr. John Kingman, Serum Specialist, Room 136, Caxton Building.' He was looking at her hopefully. "'You know my name?' he asked doubtfully. A faint smile touched her lips. "'I have heard it. Is there something I can do for you?' She pushed his card a little aside with her finger and looked at the man. He twisted in his seat and stared at the window. "'I want evidence collected for me. You do that, don't you?' He turned to her brusquely. "'I do it sometimes, yes.' He glanced at her sharply. "'I was told you are the best detective in the state.' for difficult cases. The flattery seemed to slip past the gray eyes. They were regarding him steadily. "'Is your case difficult?' she asked. "'Damned if—I beg your pardon.' He chewed at the corner of his mustache. It had a short, crop look, as if it had been attacked in moments of perplexity. The woman's hand reached the drawer beside her, and it slid softly open. "'Would you mind if I knit?' she said. He stared at her. "'Knit? Oh!' His eye fell on the green wool with a condescending glance. "'Go ahead,' he granted. He laughed with a little masculine ease, and watched the needles as they moved swiftly in her fingers. "'Women like that sort of thing,' he commended. "'I believe if my wife had knit things like that,' he moved his hand to the green wool. "'I'd never be here.' Her needles had come to the end of a row, and they turned it deftly. She did not speak. The man's face relaxed a little. "'I want a divorce, you know.' "'Yes?' The word and the wool ran together in quiet assent, and the man stretched himself comfortably in his chair. "'My wife—' She lifted her eyes. "'You had better not tell me about it,' she said. "'I don't handle divorce cases.' He stared and sat up quickly. "'You're too high-toned, I suppose.' It was a quick sneer. "'Not high enough,' she returned. "'I should be glad to handle them, if I knew enough. I don't. They belong to a very high grade of work.' "'You take murder cases, don't you?' he retorted. "'Sometimes.' "'And you mean to tell me a divorce case is more difficult than a murder case?' He moved his hand cynically. "'Much more difficult for me,' she added. "'Have you tried the Corbin Agency?' "'I don't want the Corbin Agency,' he said brusquely. He studied her face. "'You needn't be afraid of this case,' he said smoothly. "'It will be perfectly respectable. I want it to be respectable. That's why I came to you.' If you will let me tell you— She turned her knitting again. I'd rather not, please. I should be sure to get interested. That's what I hoped, he said quickly. 
Yes, but I don't want to get interested. It blurs my mind, takes off its edge for the cases I am pledged to carry. I will give you a piece of advice, if you like. I am willing to pay well for it, he expanded. This is not for pay. No matter what your wife has done, go home and do everything you can that will be for her good. The man stared. Stop thinking about yourself and your wrongs. I don't know what they are. I'd rather not know. Whatever they are, they are past. If it is best for your wife to leave you, then help her do it. Stop thinking about yourself. The man's narrow eyes widened a little as they studied the quiet face before him. She nodded. Help her to get away from you if you think she will be better off. The man's eyes continued to regard her with a puzzled look. But I'd be pretty sure first, if I were you, that it's best for her to leave you. It would be a silly sort of body, if its heart went wrong, that went to work planning to get rid of it, divorce it for good and all. That's a homely way of saying it. I'm a homely woman, and when people are married they seem to me one, just as truly as the body is all one. I don't divorce part of me, unless it's too bad to be made right. If it is, I go to a good surgeon and tell him to make quick work of it. She paused with a thoughtful look and smiled. But the best surgeons now, they tell me, don't believe in amputating. They bring their cases to a serum specialist, don't they? She nodded toward the card on the desk. And you find out what's wrong, and give them some more of the same kind, only different, and they get well. The look in the man's face darted, and broke in a little laugh. You think I'd better give Rose serum treatment? Spiritual serum? He chuckled. His face had cleared. I wonder what kind, he said thoughtfully. His voice had the keen note of the scientist attacking a difficult problem. Some brand of human kindness, I should say, responded Milly dryly. The man laughed and got up. I believe you've been giving me serum treatment. He held out his hand. If there is ever anything I can do for you, he motioned to the card. She glanced down at it, and her face lighted. Some day I should like to come to you to study, she said. I want to know about this serum business. I think perhaps it would help me to understand human nature a little better. He laughed out. More likely you would tell me enough about people, so I would understand my own serums better. I've been staring at my cultures for years, never suspecting what they might mean. He looked at her curiously. Do you know, this is the first time in six months that I have laughed. She returned the look quietly. It's a pity your wife couldn't hear you. She said it in a matter-of-fact tone, and he laughed out again. I am going home, he said. I came here with the idea that I was a desperate figure, a kind of modern Othello, blighted life and so on, due to infidelity. You've made me see I'm sick, a kind of spiritual invalid that hasn't sense enough to take care of a common cold, just goes around suffering with it. He paused a minute and looked at her thoughtfully. May I say that if divorce cases are difficult, they ought to be your specialty. You may not know enough to handle them, but you certainly have common sense. She shook her head. Yes, I have common sense but they require a higher kind of sense. Some day I hope to have a little of it, only by that time, she turned to him with a quick look, marriage may be out of date. She said it a little whimsically, and motioned aside the checkbook he had drawn from his pocket. No, I do not want your money. The advice may not be worth anything. Try it and see. When he was gone, she went to the window and threw it up, and stood looking off at the clouds. Her face had a tired look, and now and then she passed her hands quietly across her eyes and down her face, as if she were freeing herself from something. When she resumed her knitting, there was a little smile on her lips. Her mind had run back to the days when she first began work, the mistake she had made before she found herself and her work. 
In those early days she had handled divorce cases. Yes, even after she set up business for herself, there had been one or two before she learned her lesson, that they were the most difficult work in the world for a detective who wanted what she wanted. And all that she wanted grew with every day of work. Her eyes followed the amber needles, and thoughts seemed to flow before them, as if a pattern knitted itself in the green wool. At first she had tried to take notes while clients talked, but she found they grew self-conscious, and began to embroider facts, or they ran dry and stopped altogether. But the knitting seemed to relax tongues, and she had fallen into a way, when she wanted to remember a point or reconsider it, of purling a double stitch in her work. She even, as she grew more skillful, made what might be called a rough little pattern of the case in the stitches that slipped so smoothly through her fingers. Many of her plans were wrought in wool, and the knitting was always in her hands when she was talking with a new client or thinking out his case. But it was confined to the uptown office, where the most important business of the firm was transacted. Here, whenever possible, Millie received clients for the first time. Many of her clients did not even guess of the existence of the busier office, with its rows of typewriters and swinging glass doors. Chapter 6 A shadow fell on the ground-glass door and paused. Millie looked up quickly. She half reached out to close the open drawer with its ball of wool. Then she withdrew her hand and went on knitting. The shadow stirred a little, and a timid knock came on the door. "'Come in,' said Millie. She went on counting stitches. When she looked up, a tall, gaunt figure in black, heavily veiled, was standing hesitatingly by the closed door. "'Will you sit down?' she said. The woman moved forward, almost tremulously, and came to the chair by the desk. "'Are you a detective?' she asked doubtfully. "'I am Millicent Newberry, yes.' With a little gasp of relief, the woman sank into the chair. Millie went on with her knitting. Apparently she had forgotten the woman by the desk. Her eyes, following the line of wool, gave no hint that they had taken in each detail of the gaunt figure, even to the hands folded in her lap. The hands were large, and the knuckles seen through the wrinkled black gloves were slightly misshapen. The fingers seemed to clinch a little, as if to hold themselves steady. Behind the veil the dark eyes studied the woman who was knitting. She came to the end of the row before she looked up. "'Did you want to see me?' she asked, as she drew out the needle and turned her work. The woman's lips moistened themselves, and she lifted a hand and threw back the veil, as if it suffocated her. The face revealed was very pale. She gave a quick glance about the room, the flowers on the desk, the sunshine filling the room, and the grey woman with her knitting seemed to release some hidden spring, and she gave a quick, restful sigh. The pale face turned to Millie with a look of relief. "'I thought you would be different.' she said. No, this is the way I am. Can I do something for you? The gaunt hands fumbled at the bosom of her gown, and drew out an envelope and held it a minute. Then they laid it on the desk. I want to ask you about that. She said it quickly, but when Millie's hand reached to the letter, she half darted to it as if to rescue it. Then she drew back, and a wan smile crossed her face. You must not mind what I do, she said wistfully. I have been afraid to come to you. The voice was full of gentle apology, and the lines of the face seemed to soften as she looked at Milly. They gave to the face the subtle refinement that comes only through suffering and experience. "'You must not mind me,' she said again. "'I'm not afraid of you now. I want you to read it, please.' Milly opened the letter with slow fingers. 
it lay on the desk between them, and she did not offer again to take it up. The woman's eyes seemed to follow hers as they read, with a look of questioning in them. Dear Aunt Helen, I am thanking you every minute for coming to me. I know now you do not blame me. I could not talk freely with you. I am under a pledge. But a great wrong is being done. You must not rest till you know. The nurse has told me of Millicent Newberry. I think she can help you, and she can keep a secret. Go to her soon, dear aunt. I am loving you always, Marian. Milly read it through without comment, and folded it and returned it to her. Who is Marian? she asked. What is her other name? She was Marian Mason, said the woman. Milly's needles knit a double stitch before she looked up. Was? she said slowly. Then she is— She died, said the woman, the day before this was mailed. She touched the letter. There was a little quiver in her voice. She called you aunt, said Milly, with a motion toward the letter. The woman hesitated an instant. I am not her aunt, she said at last. She chose to call me aunt, but she was really my adopted daughter. We adopted her when she was twelve years old, and gave her our own name, Mason. Another double stitch slipped into the wool, and the woman's voice went quietly on. You see, she tells me to come to you. She touched the letter again. That means I must tell you everything. She seemed to shrink a little. You need not be afraid. No, it was almost eager. I want to tell you, but I have suffered, and it comes crowding back. She raised a gaunt hand to her breast, and hurried on, as if fearful her purpose might fail her. I am Mrs. Oswald Mason. We live at Lincoln. We have always lived there, and Marian lived with us until two years ago. Then she went away. I have not seen her since, until two weeks ago, when she wrote, asking me to come to her. She said they had told her she was dying, and she wanted to see me. She paused, wrestling with herself. You went to her, did you? The voice was gentle, and she raised a grateful look. I went at once. I could not have kept from going. I always loved her dearly. Even when the trouble came, I loved her, though I was very hard on her. The voice dropped almost to a whisper. "'What was the trouble?' asked Milly. "'A necklace of emeralds. They were mine,' said the woman, and they disappeared. Something in the words and the voice knit a swift, flying stitch into the green wool, but the quiet face was unmoved. "'And you thought she took them?' "'Oh, I didn't know.' The woman's hands in the wrinkled gloves clasped themselves tightly. I did not think. They were gone. Was there any reason? She was in my room alone nearly all the afternoon before they disappeared. She was doing up some laces for me, and we had been looking over my jewels, cleaning some of them. She hesitated a minute. I do not look like a woman who would have fine jewels, do I? She raised her hollow eyes. But my husband thinks I am beautiful. She said it softly and half apologetically. He likes to give jewels to me. Something far within the woman's face, a certain wild beauty, seemed to shine out elusively, and Milly, over her knitting, had a sense of truth in the words, and a quick curiosity about the man who had seen and evoked the beauty in its uncouth setting. I am old now, went on the woman slowly. It was when I was young he gave them to me, most of them but none so beautiful as the emeralds. She seemed lost in thought, and Milly did not speak or move. Already her mind was busy bringing order out of the detached, chaotic words. I could not help seeing that Marian admired them, the emeralds, while we were cleaning them. 
she held them up to the light and played with them, and finally she put them on, and went over to the mirror, and looked at herself a long time. The woman seemed to hurry over the words as if fearful of their import. I put the necklace in the case and left it unlocked on my toilet table when I went out. I did not come in till just after dinner, and I had to hurry and dress. But just before I went downstairs I saw the case, and locked it and put it in the cabinet where I always keep it. She sat silent, looking before her. I did not look in it. I could not dream of anything. I would sooner have suspected myself. The hands in the wrinkled gloves were pressed tightly together. I could not suspect Marion, she said under her breath. When did you miss them? asked Millie. The eyes returned to her swiftly. It was in the morning, next morning. Mr. Mason was starting for New York, and I remembered a pin I wanted him to take, to match a stone that had been lost, and I ran up to my room to get it. The minute I opened the case I knew the emeralds were gone. She paused a minute. It was curious I should have discovered it so soon. Sometimes I did not open the box for days. Did you tell your husband? At once. I hurried down with the box in my hand. I knew how valuable they were, and I was so thankful he had not gone before I discovered it. He was terribly startled. I could see from his face when I told him that they must have been even more valuable than I knew. But he made light of it. He told me not to worry. He said I had mislaid them and would find them somewhere in the room. He made me promise not to mention it to a soul. Then he had to hurry to catch his train, and I was left alone. I hunted everywhere. But you did not find them? No, they had been stolen. The woman's voice was dull, but there was a quick crimson spot in either cheek that gave a wild glow to her face. They have been a curse to me, she said almost fiercely. There has always been a curse on them. Always. Millie was folding her work slowly. She put it in the drawer and got up. "'You want me to take the case?' she asked. The woman nodded without speaking. She seemed still wrestling with the emotion that had caused her to cry out. Millie opened the drawer at the right and took out an agreement form, and passed it to her with a pen, indicating the line. "'If you will be kind enough to sign there, I shall be glad to take the case.' The woman received it with dazed look. She read it through and glanced up quickly. "'But this gives you a great deal of power,' she said protestingly. "'Yes, I do not take a case otherwise,' replied Milly. The woman dipped the pen slowly. "'It is strange,' she said. "'But I had thought of asking you to give me this power.' She touched the paper. "'You wanted me to find out who took the emeralds, and then let you decide what should be done with the thief?' Milly was not looking at her. The question was almost careless. "'Yes,' The woman smiled wanly. "'Of course you would not do a thing like that.' She traced her name on the paper, and Milly blotted it slowly. "'Yes, I should be quite willing to do it. But you need not be afraid to trust me with this. You and I want the same thing, I think. I will only keep it for safety, in case someone else tries to force my hand.' She replaced the paper in the drawer and turned to the woman. "'I want you to drop the case, and any fear or responsibility you may have.' Do not think of the emeralds again, till I ask you about them. But I have not told you all, protested the woman. Don't you need to know more than this? She made a little gesture. Sometime, not now, said Milly. You are tired and nervous. Go home and rest. Forget everything. Tomorrow I shall come to you as seamstress. But I have not. Your clothes need freshening. She glanced kindly at the dingy black garments, 
and the woman's face flushed. "'This evening,' said Milly, "'you will see an advertisement in the paper. A first-class seamstress wanting work. You will call your husband's attention to it, and say you will telephone me. I shall come out to-morrow. I shall, of course, sleep at the house. I may not be able to stay more than three or four days. If we have not found what we want by that time, I may have to send someone else to take my place for a while. But I think we shall find it. The woman's face had grown subtly rested, and in it was something of the elusive beauty that had startled Milly a little before. She stood up and held out her hand. "'I cannot tell you what it means to trust you, to trust anyone,' she said slowly. "'I shall sleep to-night.' "'You are not to worry again, remember. I only wish you had come to me sooner.' "'Oh, I could not!' A little shudder ran through the words. "'I could not have come now. I should not have known about you if it had not been for this.' She looked down at the letter in her hand. "'The nurse told her you could be trusted, you see.' that was why i came what was the nurse's name asked milly did you see her yes she was miss stanton alice stanton she said she knew you she glanced at her inquiringly milly nodded she was concerned in a case i had last year she is a fine woman yes and marian trusted her she held out the letter i am going to leave this with you but her fingers seemed still to retain their hold on it do you want to asked milly i want to leave everything with you said the woman impulsively something that was like a smile touched the dark face i did not think when i came i should be saying that to you she added softly go home and rest said milly and to-morrow i shall come to you i shall help you in every way i can when the woman was gone she unfolded the letter she had placed in her hands and read it slowly and thoughtfully and carried it to the case across the room, and locked it away. Then she went to the telephone and called the downtown office, and gave directions for an appointment to be made for her with Daggett and Beals, the leading jewelry firm in the city, at eleven o'clock. She hesitated a moment. Then she called the Corbin agency and asked for the manager. After a minute's delay, a gruff, important voice came over the wire to her, and she smiled a little as the importance reached her. "'It is Millie, Tom.' I'm at my office, yes. I want to come in about twelve, to talk over the Mason case. Shall you be there? Yes, all right. Thank you. She hung up, and took her hat and coat from the closet, and left the office. CHAPTER Seven. The dingy window was cluttered with a collection of strange objects, and dark smells and secrets seemed to emerge from the low doorway as Milly entered the shop. The old man who hurried forward from a back room greeted her with an eager, smiling face. He rubbed his hands a little. "'It is a long time we do not see you,' he said slowly. The small eyes and shrugged-up shoulders regarded her kindly. "'How is business?' asked Milly. "'Oh, but bad.' The shoulders shrugged themselves higher, and the outspread palms laid it before her. She smiled a little. "'Always bad, isn't it, Mr. Stransky? I am looking for emeralds.' She spoke abruptly, and a swift look crossed the man's face. "'Emeralds, so?' The hands spread themselves wider. He watched her face humbly. "'Listen,' she said. "'I want to find a number of stones, or perhaps a whole necklace.' "'Oh-ho!' The hands made a swift, intelligent gesture that passed quickly to the face. "'That would be the Mason emeralds,' he said. "'Yes, have you seen them?' He shook his head with a long, knowing smile. 
"'If I see those stones, I rich man,' he said quaintly. "'You have heard of them?' He nodded darkly. "'Mr. Corbin, he offered big money two year ago. He say big reward, no risk.' He shook his head slowly, spreading his fingers wide and touching one in swift emphasis. "'Not one emerald in all two years,' he declared. "'Not one.' Milly looked at him thoughtfully. "'Sometimes, you know, you have managed to find things for me, after every one else had given up.' She spoke with a little slow significance. "'I know you will do your best for me,' she added casually. A swift mask seemed to fall from the man's face. The small eyes regarded her with kindly glance, and the hands and shoulders were quiet. "'I do all for you, Miss Newberry,' he declared. "'What comes in, I tell you, first. But those emeralds,' he shook his head, "'I think they will not come.' "'No?' "'No. A strange case,' said the man. "'One day safe in box, next day gone, and not one stone comes in.' "'How much do you know about them?' asked Milly curiously. "'They tell us the number of stones and size, yes. Every pawn shop in the city has looked out. But not one stone,' he said impressively. "'Why should they steal and not try to sell?' he demanded of her. She shook her head. "'That's what I am going to find out, if I can.' The man's eyes regarded her trustingly. "'I think you will find them,' he said. "'Yes, I think it,' he nodded his head. "'Thank you.' I wish you could help me. How is Mrs. Stransky? Oh, Sarah! He raised his voice to the back of the shop. She want to see you, he confided to the detective. A little, shining-eyed woman came haltingly from the dusk of the rear. When she saw the gray figure by the door, she hurried forward. It is Miss Newberry, she cried. Yes, and how is Jacob? asked Milly, taking the eager hand. Yes, but fine, said the woman. You come in? Not this morning, Milly smiled. I came to ask Mr. Stransky to help me. Yes, the shining eyes consulted her husband's face. He shook his head. Nothing, he replied. Oh, but too bad, said the woman briskly, not to help Miss Newberry when she needs something, and she help Jakey and not tell police. Her lifted hands were full of grateful memory. He is all right, is he? asked Milly. Jacob got good job, nodded the man. And always good boy, broke in the wife. Always so good boy. He get married now, next fall, she announced proudly. I am glad, said Milly. Tell him to come and see me some time. He like come, said the woman eagerly. Always when he go to see you, he say it like some good time to see Miss Newberry. He's sorry when you say not come any more. Milly laughed out. Well, tell him I don't say not come. I say come, next week or whenever he can. Only telephone me first. I must go now and hunt emeralds. The eyes of the two followed her from the door of the shop. Then they turned and regarded each other gravely. "'She good woman,' said the man. "'Like our lady of the water,' responded his wife. "'She hold a big candle and look everywhere.' Something in the uplifted hand and fixed gaze of the tiny figure was not unlike the great statue that stands guard at the door of the nation, and Isaac's face held it admiringly. The woman's lips moved softly. She say, come, all children, I give good chance, she murmured under her breath. The fixed look broke. A figure stood in the doorway, and she moved toward it. Jakey, it is Miss Newberry. One minute now, she say, come. The youth stopped with perplexed gaze. Now what have I done? He muttered quickly. Oh, but not, Jackie. 
she was half laughing half crying with the love and admiration in her gaze the worn fingers stroked his sleeve it was little visit she say make call what for demanded the youth i'm keeping straight his shoulders squared themselves she can't come back on me for nothing he declared proudly his father's hand made gentle passes across the straightened shoulders and his voice was soothing so he said she say make call like friend oh sure laughed the boy i'd like to call on her all right she is great the shining mother eyes regarded him and the little figure drew itself erect something of the spirit of liberty touched it again as she repeated softly after jakey she is great and again softly she hold candle high look everywhere chapter eight tom corbin got up quickly with a smile well it's good to see you milly coming in that door it's like old times you know she shook hands with him and glanced about the office you haven't changed things much have you more dust that's about all said tom he looked about the room critically as if he saw it with new eyes and for the first time dust doesn't hurt he declared good for fingerprints he laughed out bad for fingers returned milly spoils the touch well perhaps you've decided to take the mason case have you he was smiling at her a little cynically she nodded if you will give me the data oh i'll give you the data all you want they've been right here waiting for some time he laid his hand on a huge pile of papers on the table all those asked milly incredulous and more responded tom these are the siftings you'd better draw up he placed a chair for her and they bent over the mass of papers tom explaining and elaborating as she questioned and made notes and laid aside such papers as she wished to take with her it was evident that no pains had been spared and no details overlooked to a mind trained as milly's had been under tom corbin's strenuous methods the piled-up papers represented an enormous amount of faithful work if it had been possible to solve the case by hard work the corbin agency would already have been in possession of the reward offered fifteen thousand dollars said tom were the stones worth as much as that asked milly in surprise well he looked reflective they were probably valuable but i somehow had an idea that the reward covered something besides the worth of the jewels something i could not put my finger on he added awkwardly yes she was smiling he shrugged his shoulders i got into the way of imagining things of that sort working with you he declared there's nothing in it probably probably not she murmured the situation as outlined was certainly clear and lacking in any element of mystery that might explain its baffling character it lay before milly in methodical order each point carefully tabulated and arranged with tom corbin's usual skill the jewel case was always kept locked and mrs mason wore the key on a little chain on may third mrs mason and marian her adopted daughter a young woman about nineteen had been going over the jewels cleaning some of them mrs mason had gone out for the afternoon leaving the case on the toilet table unlocked there was no one else at home except the servants who were all in the rear of the house mr mason the husband a broker in a small way was in town the son a young man of twenty-three who was assistant cashier in a bank was in town and did not come home until dinner the servants testified that no one had called during the afternoon and marian mason testified that no one had been in that part of the house except herself mrs mason came in just before dinner and dressed hastily she locked the jewel case without looking at it and put it in the cabinet where it was always kept 
she did not employ a maid. No one except herself and her husband were in the room during the night. The next morning, before breakfast, she had occasion to open the box. The necklace was gone. On June 26th the detective had been called in. Tom pointed to the date with careful finger. "'That was the real trouble,' he said. "'They waited too long. The scent was cold. More than six weeks old, you see.' "'Yes, foolish, to wait. I wonder why they did.' "'Oh, the husband was away a few days, and when he got home he seems to have tried working on it himself. Amateur detective,' sneered Tom. "'He did not find anything, of course.' "'Worse than nothing. By the time we took hold, the thief had had plenty of time to get out and to cover his tracks.' "'If he got out, yes.' Millie was looking thoughtfully at a paper before her. "'How about this son? Did you follow that up?' "'Here they are,' said Tom. He sorted a sheaf of papers for her. He was in debt, you see, deep in, earlier in the year, owed his tailor, and gambled some, dances and flowers and so on. He ran them over swiftly. Here, April 14th, he bought a new car, and borrowed part payment on it, gave his note for five hundred to a friend. He had no end of friends, and borrowed right and left from them, spent three times his salary, it seems, but everything was above board, nothing you could follow up, and come to a shady place. Then here, you see, date May 3rd, he must have had a large sum in hand. He drew several large checks that day, and he paid up everything, all the debts, between the third and the twenty-sixth. "'You found where he got the money, of course,' said Milly. She was glancing through the papers he gave her. "'Not a cent of it. Not a clue to it. He must have had it in cash. No big deposit check turned in. Nothing. Everybody seems to have trusted him, down to the ground. Besides,' he pointed to the date, he had the money before the jewels were taken, you see. Yes, unless they misrepresented the date to shield him. I wish they had, chuckled Tom. That would have been easy to check, like taking candy from a child. They're simple sort of folks. Are they, said Millie, and the gaunt figure in its black garments passed swiftly before her. Perfectly simple. If you go out there to work, you'll like them all. All? By Jove, that's so. The sun's gone. And the adopted daughter is dead said Milly. "'You're right. There's no one there now but the two old folks.' He seemed struck by it for the first time. "'You did not suspect the daughter?' asked Milly casually. "'Suspected everybody,' replied Tom. "'Do now. But absolutely no proof. We shadowed her weeks after she went away. Not a sign. And we shadowed the son, too, nearly a year. He was perfection.' Tom laughed cynically. "'I wish I had half as good a record as the men brought in for him.' always home nights, kind to his mother, taking her out driving, watching over her like a dutiful son. One of our men was put on as chauffeur for a while. He said he never saw anything like the fellow's devotion to his mother. Well, I don't know. He pushed the papers from him with a sigh. That case has bothered me more than a little. I wake up in the night sometimes, even now, thinking about it. Though I swore, six months ago, I'd never touch the thing again. How about the pawn shops? asked Milly. "'Worse than useless. Bad year for emeralds, they say,' he chuckled. "'And I guess they're straight. They all have the description of them. Of course a large part of the value was in the gradation, color, and size. The separate stones would not be so easy to identify either. But nothing has come in. It almost looks as if that necklace had not been broken up,' he said thoughtfully. "'Well, take it, and I wish you joy of your findings,' he added almost savagely. "'I declare,' He looked down at the piled-up papers before him. "'If you can put your finger on the right clue in these,' he laid his hand on them, 
I'm almost willing to say I'll sign that paper of yours for keeps. We'd go into partnership, and you should do what you liked with all the cases you handled. It was magnanimous and hearty, and Milly laughed out. Take care, Tom. I might take you at your word. Better wait. Besides, I may fail worse than you have. You couldn't do that, he said generously. But to be perfectly frank with you, I don't think there's much danger you will be able to take up my offer. He was looking at her almost regretfully. Well, I can only try. She gathered up the papers she had selected and placed them in her portfolio. Was the necklace bought here in the city? she asked. Daggett and Beals, responded Tom. I think I'll ask them for a description, said Milly, taking up her portfolio. You've got it there, he nodded to the portfolio. The one Mrs. Mason gave, yes, but sometimes a new description is a help when a case is baffling. All right, said Tom. He eyed the scattered papers on the table from which Milly had made her selection. The mass seemed scarcely reduced. I don't think you'll find many facts we've overlooked, he said dryly. I don't expect to. It's a splendid piece of work. Well, good-bye, Tom. She held out her hand. I'll come in and report when I've made any progress. Tom took the hand and looked down on her from his height. You're a good sport, Milly, but you'll find you're up against it this time. He said it almost apologetically, and held her hand as if loath to deceive her. She drew the hand away with a flitting smile. Good-bye. You will see me again, you know, she nodded, and the door closed behind her. Tom looked at the closed door. He shook his head. He looked at the scattered papers on the table, and a shadow of irritation crossed his face. He summoned a girl from the adjoining room. "'Take them away,' he ordered. "'Yes, sir. Shall I file them again?' He shrugged his shoulders. "'Do what you like with them. They're mere trash to a woman,' he said savagely. "'Oh, yes, sir,' she murmured vaguely, and she bore them away. 